the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Bless them that curse you. I mean, when's the last time we did that on a Facebook post? When's the last time we did that in social media? Bless them that curse you. We live in a tremendous opportunistic time because the lines are clearly drawn. So we can go out there and we know exactly who the enemy is and we can look them in the eye and say, God loves you, he always will, and I love you too no matter what you do to me. Don't you think that will transform people's lives? Hello and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. The God of the universe had been working with a specific people group, the Israelites, fulfilling a promise he had made to their great patriarch Abraham. God had set free the Israelites from their captivity in Egypt and was now in the process of revealing his own nature to them on Mount Sinai. God is a holy God and desires a holy people. He has been giving the Ten Commandments. We join Pastor Will as we go over the Sixth Commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. God has finally brought Israel to Mount Sinai where he's going to fulfill the second of the three promises that he made to Israel. He said he would bring them out of Egypt. He'd bring them into the promised land. And he said that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so this relationship that he promised with Israel, he is now initiating it. And when they arrive, Moses goes up into the mountain to meet with God and God gives the terms of the relationship. He says, you'll obey my commands and if you do, you'll be my special people with all the benefits that come with that. The people agree to these terms, so Moses tells them to prepare for God's presence to descend and speak to them. And and man, when God descends and he comes in thunder and lightning and fire on the mountaintop, and in chapter 20, he begins to speak. And as we looked at last Sunday night, he begins to speak the Ten Commandments. And when we look at this, we read through it, we started looking at the first five last week and we saw, man, what a great way to live. What a great thing if the world just did these things. We really get to God's moral code or God's moral law in the heart. They're right here in these things. And if we did these things, we'd we'd be a great place. In fact, it's very likely, of course, we look at things pre-fall, that's how things were. But things are not that way now. And of course, we can't keep the standard in that sense. But we can find the heart of God here. And as a result, you know, we, we see it's a great way of life. And so may the Lord speak to our heart in that sense as we move through the rest of these commandments. Now, the first four of the Ten Commandments are Godward. They are toward Him, our relationship with Him. When we get to the fifth commandment, uh, with honor your father and mother, now it begins to deal with our relationship with others. And so today we're going to pick it up at the sixth commandment, which is in verse 13, thou shalt not kill. 
So the first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment was, you don't make an image of me to, to worship me in that image. The third one was not to take the Lord's name in vain. The fourth one was to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. The fifth was honor your father and mother. And now the sixth in verse 13, thou shalt not kill or murder is a more appropriate word. Now, the idea behind what God is saying when he says, thou shalt not murder, is the preservation of life. That's the, the design that God has when he says, you shall not murder. It's showing that the heart of this is that God wants to preserve life. And yet, we know from Jesus' words that that command goes even deeper. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5 with me. And we're going to actually be in Matthew 5 uh, quite a bit here because Jesus brings up some of these commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, and keep your finger there because we'll be going back to it a couple times. Now one of the reasons that Jesus had to explain some of these commandments is because Israel had done a funny thing. They had kind of taken God's commands and the letter of what they said, and they had lost the heart of what they meant. And as a result, they created other laws that basically allowed you to violate the commandment without violating the commandment. Jesus, when he speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, giving God's standard, he goes to the heart of what God meant when he gave that commandment. So we find here in Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says to them, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. So and he says, you have heard it said in old time. It's not that Jesus is mocking Moses or he's saying that Moses wasn't correct. He's saying that what they added on to it was not correct. He's saying, you have heard it said of old time, you shall not kill, and that whoever does it is in danger of the judgment. That's the part that they added to God's word. So the idea is that as long as you avoid the physical killing part, then it's okay to have all the emotions of hatred and anger and, and wanting to kill somebody. It's fine to want to kill them. If you, as long as you don't follow through with it, then you don't experience any judgment from God. So Jesus explains in verse 22, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, what's interesting is that most manuscripts don't have the without cause there. It just says, whosoever is angry with his brother. And as uh, Greg and, and Janelle brought up so well in our marriage class, when they taught on anger, they talked about the idea that whenever we get angry, something is destroyed. Now, that can be a good thing. When God is righteous anger, there are things that are evil and wicked that are destroyed, and that's a good thing. But our anger oftentimes is not that way. It is tainted. And as a result, we end up doing exactly what the commandment says not to do. We usually hear people say, to hate someone in your heart is the equivalent of murder. They actually will quote this passage and not say anger, but actually to hate someone. But that's not what the Bible says. This anger here it refers to an anger which broods, an anger which refuses to forget and refu which refuses to be pacified. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Obviously, when we get angry at wrongdoing, there are things that I see that are wrong that make me angry. It takes about two seconds on social media. And I see the wrong thing and I get angry and I think this is wrong. Why would someone say that? Or why would someone act that way? Or why would someone say that this is truth when you know it's not truth? There's a righteous anger there. Now, if I linger more than two seconds, it turns into unrighteous anger and I want to do or say something unbiblical. Thankfully, I withhold myself and I don't do that. 
The idea here is not an anger which is righteous, but it's the anger which broods, the anger which refuses to forget and which refuses to be pacified. Now, why is that murder? Why is that the equivalent of murder? Well, see, when I do that, I'm ultimately saying you might as well be dead because I refuse to love you the way that God loves you because that's not how God treats us. There is a sense that their life is no longer valuable to me, not like it is to God. And the Lord says, don't do that with everyone. Everyone is important to me. There are people out there that they do horrible things and they do wicked things. And I pray for our president because I know God loves him. I remember I told somebody that once and they shook their head and said, I don't believe that. And I said, well, you need to read your Bible because the Bible says that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. So God is, he does love him. He, he does care about him. He does care about other individuals who have wicked beliefs or wicked stances. It doesn't mean that we're okay with that. But, you know, we need to have a heart toward them in the same way the Lord is toward them. Now, why is that important, to have that heart towards every, every person? Could you imagine a world where every single human being valued every other human being the way that God values us? Can you imagine what that kind of a world would be like? We wouldn't need the rest of these commandments, would we? I mean, really, honestly, we wouldn't need any of these. That's why Jesus said that all the law was fulfilled in this one saying, love your neighbor as yourself. I wouldn't need to worry about any of these other things if we would just value people, if every single human being valued every other human being the way that God values us. As Christians, we we face a great challenge in our day and age because we're not near the times that the early Christians lived in. But in the sense where the culture is opposed to us, we are moving in that direction. I see a lot of Christians who, they feel the hatred coming their way. They feel the the distaste, the disgust, the angst, the, the frustration, the critique, the criticism, the mocking. And we feel it coming our way. And the problem is, is we kind of want to lash back, you know, and fight back. But that's the very nature of the thing where Jesus said, if someone smites you on the cheek, what do you do? You turn the other cheek. Now, if someone actually punches me in the face, I'm not there yet. <laughs> not likely, at least. I don't know. I've, I've, I've surprised myself sometimes, but not likely, okay? But my point is, is that when we, we act, you know, see someone act a certain way in hatred towards us, that was something the early church experienced. Like when you read about the things that the early church did in response to the hatred that came their way, the murderous hatred that came their way, you don't see them writing, you know, op-eds about how awful the world is and how horrible the Roman Empire is. You know, if you've ever wanted an education in early church ideals towards how they related to the world when they were persecuted, read some of the writings of Justin Martyr. He argues for why the Christians shouldn't be persecuted, so he makes this argument. And he explains why the Christians in the Roman Empire should be treated with dignity and respect, should be valued by the Roman Empire because of the values that we have. But he doesn't lash out against the emperor. He doesn't lash out against the the Senate. He doesn't lash out against all the leadership in the area. It's fascinating when he talks about God's love for them and he talks about, you know, how Christians want to be supportive of that. They want to, they want to love them, want to serve them. We want to be a positive influence to those around us. It's fascinating when you see that kind of love. And when you give the fact that he got his name martyr means witness, not because he died, although he did get martyred for his faith. So many of these people who love these folks died. And what did Jesus say? As they're nailing him, he didn't say, don't anybody vote for these guys. He said, Father... Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realize the implications of what they're doing. And when you're dealing with a world that kind of comes at you with hatred or critique or mocking, realize they don't realize what they're doing. They're lost. 
God loves them, and that's why he died for them. He saw the, us. He saw we, us before we got saved in our lost condition, and he came down, and he died for us. And, and that is the type of love that's going to impact the world in a way that's going to make a change. The, if we keep fighting in that sense, fighting it in an earthly battle, I'm not saying we don't stand up for righteousness, and I'm not saying we don't hold fast the word of truth. I'm not saying we don't vote for righteous things. We better, or otherwise we're going to get what we ask for. But my point is, there's a vitriol that I see from Christians' mouths that has no place. That is not how we win our enemy over. The Bible says, do good to your enemy. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, you know, at the end there of, uh, after he goes through a bunch of these commandments, you know, he talks about how we treat our enemies. I didn't even plan on talking about all this, but it's really on my heart because I don't see the church making an impact because I don't think we're being obedient to the Lord in this. He says in verse 43, you have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. I mean, when's the last time we did that on a Facebook post? When's the last time we did that in social media? Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them, and I love what Jesus says, which not just use you and persecute you, but despitefully. Spite, they're doing it just to spite you because they hate what you stand for, which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Because then you'll be just like your dad. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise in the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the publicans the same? If you salute your brothers only, what more do you do than others? Do not even the publicans so? You know, this is our Father. and I mean, I know where I was when he found me and I was not for him. I was opposed to him. I said all sorts of stupid and crazy things. And yet he, he reached down and he, he loved me. He, he spoke to me through other people who cared about me, who showed me a Christian love that I didn't understand. I would go to church and at the time my parents were going through some marital trouble so they weren't together at that time. And, and, and I was I'm 12 years old. I don't know nothing. My, my whole world's upside down. I remember this lady, she would just come over. I, to this day, I don't know if she's a person or an angel. I'm pretty sure she's a person. Her name was BJ and she would come over all the time and, and she would just, during greet time, and she would say to me, say, hey, hey, Mr. Will, you know, how, how are you doing? What are you reading in your Bible? You know, how's your, how's your prayer life and stuff like that? And I thought, this lady didn't know me from Adam. I obviously had issues, you know, I was real quiet. Just it was obvious I had some stuff going on. You know, eventually I gave my life to Christ. She would continue to encourage me and stuff. I still don't know who she is. I'll meet her in heaven someday, I'm sure. Big old church, you know. But she took the time to come and find me, you know, most of the time that I was there on Sunday. I'd look for her. I got used to seeing her because she'd just shake my hand and ask me how I was doing and encourage me to read my Bible and pray. I think of all the love that people showed me. My grandparents showed me when my whole family wasn't saved. Okay, I'm, I'm from the 80s, all right? Those are the times of really good music, in my opinion. Any 80s folks out here? All right, we got a few. Okay, you know. But the type of music, stylistically, not necessarily, but lyrically and whatnot, was certainly not edifying. And, and there would be those moments where you'd make sure that you hit the stop button on your cassette player when mom opened the door because you did not want her hearing those lyrics. When my birthday came around one time, I, I was all excited because I thought, you know, I'm starting to get into music and that's how things were when you're cool. And I had my jeans jacket. Everybody had an 80s jeans jacket, right? So I, I asked for my birthday new music. And you know what my grandparents got me? They got me a Petra album. And I'm like... 
a Christian music album? I don't want that. I wanted the new ACDC album. (laughs) But I remember, you know, they exemplified certain things to me that they just kept coming at me with with just love. They were always so kind. My grandparents would get into with my dad all the time because he wasn't saved. And and my mom really wasn't walking with the Lord at that time. But they would reach out to me and minister to me. and, and, And through that, I listened to that. And it became one of my favorite cassettes. I wasn't saved, but it became one of my favorite things. One of my favorite songs was a song called Bema Seat, and it was about how we're all going to stand before the Lord someday. And I can't but help think that when I read Hal Lindsey's book, that's how I got saved. I read Hal Lindsey's book, not the late great pan of the earth, but the new world, there's a new world coming. And I learned about the fact that there was judgment coming upon the earth and that there'd be a time when, when all the Christians would be removed and that God was going to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. And I knew that would be me. I knew it would be me. And I didn't want to be there. I was so scared. You know, I thought, I know what I deserve. I know that that's me. I know that when God does those things, I deserve it. I knew it. And I didn't understand the difference between God's great white throne judgment seat and the Bema seat for rewards. But at that time, all I could think in my mind is, I'm gonna stand before that and I don't wanna be lost. I don't wanna go through that mess. I wanna be rescued. I wanna be saved. When it was shortly thereafter that my my dad got saved and so we started going to church and, and I gave my life to the Lord. When I first got saved, I was such a wreck. I was in a bad spot emotionally. I was in a bad spot with my education. I'd always had perfect grades and I was going downhill fast. I didn't care about anything at that point in time. I had sports was the one thing and that wasn't even, I was very good. And, and, but at that time I was struggling because just going through emotional stuff. We started going to this little tiny church and like I said, I was messed up. All I could care about was which pretty girl I was gonna date in the youth group. I didn't care about the Bible. I didn't care, even though I was a Christian, a young baby Christian, I didn't care about any of those things. And those, those patient people just loved me. They loved me in spite of me. I some, must have said some of the dumbest things. I ran away from home one night and I, I ended up on my pastor's dock. And I, you know, he looked out the window and he saw me out there and I, he didn't call my, he called my parents to let him know I was alive. But he didn't call him up and say, you know, come get your kid. What's he doing on my dock? You know, him and his, his daughter who lived with him, she was an older single woman. And, and, and he just ministered to me all day all day. Messed up, kid. I didn't deserve that. God didn't have to do any of that for me. And those people that treated me with such love didn't have to do that for me. But that showed me that there was something different out there, that there was something real, that there was a God who cared about me so deeply. And eventually I started to believe it. They kept telling it to me. They kept saying it over and over again. And eventually me, who was an enemy opposed to the things of God, I could have cared less about waiting until you got married to have sex. I could have cared less about what was true and what was right. I wanted what I wanted. But at that time, I realized that there was a God out there who loved me and cared about me. And it was, that was way more important than anything else I thought about. That was the love that people showed to me. I remember I said so many stupid things. We were in the car one day. I don't remember what she asked me. And I said, oh yeah, when we get to heaven someday, all our evil deeds are going to be played before us. And I probably must have scared the daylights out of her. (laughs) I remember my pastor had to pull me aside and say, that's not what the Bible has to say. The Bible says that we're washed clean, that all our sins are washed away. I had a lot of things I was wrong about. But people took the time to love me and to care about me through them. And, you know, eventually I kind of started moving on the right direction. Eventually, I started to get really excited about the Lord, and I started to follow him in my whole life. You know, when we talk about the commandment, thou shalt not kill, really what God is saying is, love like I love, you know? Love like I love. Because when you love like I love, you're gonna turn this world right side up. When you love like I love, you're gonna change lives around you. 
You know, and I can't help but think we have a tremendous opportunity in front of us, you know, with the community around us. We're going to do this outreach, you know, in July. And I'm telling you guys, maybe you might look at it and go, what are we going to do? You know, I don't know, but I know this, that we serve the God who does miracles, that we serve the God who loves those people intimately. And that if we go, if we'll just be obedient and we will go and we will trust him, that anything could happen. And who, who cares, even if it's just one life that's changed, one life that's going down a crazy path and through the love that they're shown through the time investment that someone makes into their life that maybe starts that day and continues over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Who knows what that person might accomplish for the Lord someday. We live in a tremendous opportunistic time because the lines are clearly drawn. So we can go out there and we know exactly who the enemy is and we can look them in the eye and say, God loves you, he always will, and I love you too no matter what you do to me. Don't you think that will transform people's lives? Thou shalt not kill. So verse 14, back in Exodus 20, he says, thou shalt not commit adultery. The word adultery here just means to have sexual intercourse with someone who is not your spouse, and that should be self-explanatory. Just as the previous commandment is about the preservation of life, thou shalt not kill, this one is about the preservation of marriage. And man, that is an important topic in today's culture. God's intent from the beginning is one man and one woman for life, period. Period. Now, do we fall short of that? Yes, we do fall short of that. Just like we, we don't always love like we ought love. But it's never right or okay. And like the previous command, Jesus had something more to say. So let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Now, the Pharisees, they had had kind of the equivalent of our modern day, you can look as long as you don't touch. And so their thought was, well, as long as you don't physically commit adultery, you can lust after women all you want. You know, you can look at them in a desirable way, even when they're not your spouse, that's okay. In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus references that. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. The idea here is that anything from outside the marriage that spills into the marriage or vice versa, anything that's within the marriage that now goes outside the marriage is off limits. Marriage is supposed to be holy. It's supposed to be sanctified. In fact, this command isn't so much about not crossing a boundary as about keeping yourself exclusive with your spouse, of being dedicated to them both before and during marriage. And thus, premarital sex is a no-no. I hear people say all the time, the Bible never says anything that's wrong about premarital sex. And I'm like, you're not reading the same book I'm reading. The idea is that God is saying here, He doesn't give letters of laws. He talks about principles. And the principle that's being communicated here is exclusivity. Because here's the reality. Until you say, I do, there's no guarantee they'll be your spouse. And I've seen that happen a few times. There's no guarantee. And it's wrong to take something from a person that belongs exclusively to their spouse. You say, but Will, it's okay to look right. Listen, sexual intimacy in a marriage is more than just a physical experience. God intended it also to be emotional and spiritual. Now, when you begin viewing men or women as objects of desire in your mind, you warp sexual intimacy by turning it into a solely physical act. When we allow lustful desires to grow in our minds, we warp our own emotional understanding of sex and we end up dulling the spiritual aspect of sex. Now, why is that important? What if every human being treated every other human being with dignity and respect rather than as objects of desire to be selfishly exploited? We'd we'd have very few movies, first off. You know, and, and the crazy thing is they've got us hook, line, and sinker. They do. They do. We think that's how it's supposed to be. Like, like we think that, you know, I mean, I say we, but I'm just saying 
human, humanity. That's what we think love really is about. Let me rephrase that. That's what we think sex is about. We think sex is about two particles that just can't stay apart and they collide, you know? Like it's that easy. God designed it to be so much greater than all of that. Not some mad, passionate dash to the, to the finish line, but the idea of something deeper where two people share something exclusively with one another that they don't share with anyone else. And when you do that the right way, there's a spiritual aspect of it that is highly fulfilling in a way that just the physical act by itself could never, ever, ever fulfill. Let me ask you a question. Can you imagine a world without divorce? How many of us have been touched by that? The pain that that causes. What about adultery? Can you imagine a world without adultery? What about a world without rape or abuse? where moms and dads were fully committed to each other in an exclusive manner. What about a world that looked like that? Sounds to me what all the good love songs dream about, you know? I had one thing right when I was a, a you know, teenager. You know, I, first, I got saved. I, just, I wanted to find somebody to spend the rest of my life with. I didn't want to be alone. I had friends, but I'm not very good at like small talk. I, I want meaningful relationships. And so, you know, just hanging out or whatever was not something of, of value to me. And, and guys have a tendency to not go very deep to begin with. That's our struggle. And so, you know, I, I did feel very lonely. And I, I just wanted to find somebody to spend the rest of my life with. And I looked in all the wrong places. And thankfully, none of the girls were biting. So Beverly was my first ever girlfriend. And by that time, I had grown up a little bit. And, you know, it was a much better view in our relationship. And, uh, you know, and we've, we've spent 20, will be 20 years in July, 20 amazing years. Imagine a world where that was everybody's story. Not that we're perfect. We've, we've got areas where I wish we didn't have in our history. But if we had a world like that, thou shalt not commit adultery sounds pretty good to me. The truth behind the commandments is that God wants us to walk humbly with him and to love others as God loves them. Would not the world be so much more amazing if we put God and others above ourselves? This is God's moral law. It does not justify us, but it will give us a standard of God's holiness we can follow. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, do not be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.